0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Again, I'm Luke. We're continuing Second Timothy. I was talking to somebody recently, and I was talking to them about this summer series, how we've been going um, through the book of Second Timothy, like four or five verses at a time. And they are like, oh, wow. I didn't even know that we were doing that. And I was like, okay, that's either a good thing because the messages have been so interesting that it's overshadowed the fact that we're going section by section, or they've been boring, so... I'm going to hope they've been interesting, but we're doing uh second Timothy four verses nine through 13 this morning. And man, is there a lot, a lot of really deep philosophical content in this. So let's, uh, before we read it, well, let's just start off and let's just read it. Okay, here we go. Second Timothy four verses nine through 13. Make every effort to come to me soon for Demas having loved this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, only Luke is with me, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service, but Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, when you come bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus and the books, especially the parchments, man deep right, wow, (laughs) you guys are looking like how the heck is he going to pull a sermon out of that? I was talking to my wife, Jamie, about it um, a couple of weeks ago. and She's like, you can't preach a sermon on that. I'm like, watch me challenge accepted. <laughs> <clears throat> um, <laughs> so before I, you know, before we dive into what I'm going to share, I want to talk a little bit about reputation. What have you had a reputation for in your life before? Could be something good, could be something bad. In your family, what was kind of your reputation? With your friend group, you were the fill in the blank guy or the fill in the blank girl. What was one of your reputations? I've had quite a few over the years. I've shared one. My last message, I was known as the master packer in my family. Reputation for being able to pack the car really well. Another reputation I've had over the years is loving flaming hot Cheetos, okay? So, some of you know what those are, some of you don't. Basically, if you know what normal Cheetos are, they're Cheetos, but they're Flamin' Hot in that they're spicy. And normal Cheetos, you know, they taste delicious, but the worst thing about them is that you get that orange dust stuck to your fingers. And flaming Hot is that, except even worse. So, I uh, love flaming Hot Cheetos. I remember being in middle school and high school. They were kind of just coming out, and everybody loved flaming Hot's. Um, But the one problem that no one could find the right solution for was the fact that you would get all of the dust on your fingertips. And so I can remember in school, kids had all kinds of different solutions to that. Um, My two that I would use were one, I would kind of like open the bag and then just shovel it into my mouth like this and avoid that. Or if I did reach in, because that would get annoying because some of the Cheetos would be too long and it would actually hurt my cheeks as they're going in. So... Other strategies I would use is that I would um, dump them out onto my tray. So at least I don't have to reach into the bag and get the remnants on my, um, on like my palm and the back of my hand. And when I pull them out, I'd eat like four or five at a time, then lick each finger and wipe with a napkin. And about ninth grade, I was like, okay, I think I might want to have a girlfriend one of these days. So not going to do that strategy anymore um, because it was gross. But that was a problem. Like, how the heck do you eat flaming Hot Cheetos without getting your hands filthy? And then one day, you know, the magic solution presented itself to me. I'm sitting there with my lunch. Got, I, again, I, dump, I would dump my Cheetos out on the tray. have my Cheetos in one part of the tray. have my mashed potatoes in another. I pick up my fork, my plastic fork, and I aim for the mashed potatoes and gravy. But my aim was off because I was talking to someone, and there goes my plastic fork right into the pile of cheetos, and I lifted it up quick because I had meant to I you know I was expecting to mash potatoes, and there lie a cheeto stuck to one of the prongs on that plastic fork. And you know it was like one of those moments where you're like, oh, like, like um, in movies, and my friends are like, we're all, like all my friends are looking over and wonder at the cheeto stuck to the plastic fork. And I was like, wow. And so I ate it and it was, a, yeah, it was surreal. And so then from then on out, I was the guy that ate Cheetos with a plastic fork. That was one of my reputations. And people would see me for the first time and be like, that is so weird. And then their next thought would be, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. I even took it to a whole new level. I moved in with a friend who eats lots of Asian food and he um, had, so he had a bunch of chopsticks always on hand. And I started using chopsticks with the Flamin' Hots. And that was like even, that was like level two innovation. Then people people would be coming over and I'd just be like, have a Black Cheetos, chopsticks, just eating them like normal. And they'd be like, looking at me like, what the heck is he doing? And again, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. So anyways, uh, that's one of my reputations uh, is loving Flamin' Hots. But you know what's funny? I tell you that because over the past year and a half or so, I haven't really... Liked flaming Hot Cheetos as much as I used to. Like, there was a good 10 years where that was... And I had two snacks. Reduced fat, Cheez-Its, and those are still up there, baby. But then <laughs> flaming Hot Cheetos. And um, I was known for liking those two snacks. But, you know, honestly, I don't buy them anymore. You can ask my wife, Jamie. We don't get them. We, we're in really into salt and vinegar kettle-cooked chips right now. <laughs> <clears throat> Delicious. So... I don't really like Flamin' Hots, but I swear like every three months, someone tags me in something on Facebook. that's like some funny Flamin' Hot Cheeto meme or something. And people even buy me Flamin' Hot Cheetos and like, hey, we know you're the Flamin' Hots guy. So here you go. Take this bag. I'm like, okay, you know, I'm not really into them anymore, but the reputation, I still have the reputation for Flamin' Hot. And so what are some of the reputations that you all have? That one's kind of funny, but maybe there's been a time in your life where you made a mistake or maybe there's been a time in your life where you weren't following Jesus. Or maybe there's been a time in your life when you got yourself into some big trouble. And maybe you're still trying to live down that bad reputation that you got from a previous mistake. I've been there myself. And we can try so hard to earn our reputation back. But that, that old, state, that old um, proverb is so true that it takes years to build a reputation, and seconds to lose your reputation. And so, as you're thinking about what that reputation is, I want to go back to the passage that we read. Um, again, it doesn't seem like there's a lot here, but what there are a lot of are names of people. And when I was in the Navigators College Ministry, when I attended Miami University, they're really big into Bible study, and one of the things that they taught us was when you get to a section of scripture where it's just a bunch of names, do some research on the names and see if anything interesting comes up. So basically type that name into like a search bar on, and you can find there's a website called Blue Letter Bible, and you can type in a word and it'll show you everywhere in the Bible that that word is used. And so, type in the name and see where else these people are talked about throughout the New Testament. And so, the person that, I did that for the for this section of Scripture. And the person I want to focus in on is Mark. Um, if you look back up at that passage of Scripture, you go about halfway in. Paul says, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. And so, when you type Mark, or you type John Mark, because I that's actually his full name, into that search bar, you'll find that he's mentioned a lot throughout the New Testament. And there's actually a really cool story that you can get from John Mark about what it looks like to have a reputation, lose it, and then get it back. And so before we dive into that, let's just pray. And then we're going to spend our time looking at the story of John Mark and some takeaways from it. So Father, thank you for all of us being here Thank you for flaming hot Cheetos and forks and chopsticks. Thank you for all that you want to do in our hearts and our minds um, this morning. And ask that you would just keep us open to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the story of John Mark. So John Mark was actually the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so it doesn't say the Gospel of John Mark. I think later on in life he kind of... Um, stop going by John because there's so many Johns in the Bible. And so he wanted to be unique. So he's Mark. Um, But his full name is John Mark. And the gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament was written by him. And he actually wrote it through Peter. So Peter shared with him his experience of being with Jesus. And then Mark is the one who actually wrote it down and, and compiled the information. And so that's who John Mark was. And again, Paul's mentioning him here towards the end of Paul's life. So this is the last mention of John Mark in the scriptures. And what I want to do is basically just go through every scripture in the New Testament where John Mark is mentioned. So we're going to start with one. And this one, actually, he isn't directly mentioned here. And I can't prove it to you that this verse is about him. But a lot of people speculate that this is John Mark actually talking about himself in um, the book of Mark that he wrote. So let's read it. This is uh, the scene where Jesus is getting betrayed by Judas and about to be arrested and go off to be crucified. Here we go. Mark fourteen fifty one to 52. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And they seized him, but he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. So there's Mark's glory in, <laughs> in the gospel of Mark. Um, so why do people think this was Mark? Well, it's such a random little blurb. It's like one, one moment it's talking about Jesus being arrested. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, and by the way, there's this young man who happened to be there. And he had a linen sheet on and that's it. And then he ran off naked. And it's like, okay, um, why the heck would... Like that 's such a random minuscule minute detail that is not that significant, but it is significant if the author is actually talking about himself right there. so a lot of people think that that is the first mention of John Mark in the Bible, and that he was probably like a young teenager at that point in time, and he actually saw Jesus be um, betrayed by Judas. Another reason that you, um, this is people think that is if you look up. If you, Eric, can you go back to the verse? Sorry, I didn't warn you about this. If you look at the verse, um, do you notice that there is an asterisk above seized? You see that? That is indicative of what um, is called the the historical past, or the, I think it's what it's called, historical present. Jason, what's it called again? Okay, historical present. So, here's what that is. It was a writing technique that biblical authors used to emphasize a point in a story. Basically, they'd be telling a story, and when you tell a story, you're telling it in past tense. But then, um, a really significant point would come, and the author would actually change the tense from past to present. So, it's kind of like if I'm telling you a story, I'm like, then we did this, then we did this, then we did this, and then here I am. I'm looking at whatever. That's kind of what it was like. It would shift from past tense to present tense to make an emphasis. Again, why would you emphasize something so random? And the reason is, well, people think that this is actually John Mark. So that's possibly the first mention of him. We don't hear about him. um, That was probably in AD 33. We don't hear about him again for about 10 years. But about 10 years later, um, Peter and another disciple, another apostle named James, actually get attacked by Herod. James dies, and Peter gets thrown in jail. Herod was a Roman-appointed ruler over Judea. And so Peter's in jail, and he's probably going to get executed, and the church is praying for him. And an angel actually comes in, lets him out of prison, takes him past the guards. And they don't see him, so he's, you know they must have had invisibility or something. And then Peter goes to a house where people are actually praying for him that moment. And that house happens to be John Mark's mother's house. Her name was Mary, and John Mark was there as well. So let's read that real quick. This is uh, Acts twelve twelve. 12. Um, and when he realized this, this is Peter, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So, again, after being let out of prison, Peter comes to John Mark's home. This might be the beginning of Peter and John Mark's close relationship. Actually, later on in the Bible, when Peter writes his letter to a church, he refers to Mark as his son, his beloved son. And so they had a really close relationship together. Um, they, uh, again, Mark wrote, the go- Mark wrote his gospel with Peter as being the primary person supplying the information. Moving on. Next part of the Bible that John Mark has mentioned is Acts 12, verse 25. And so this is where he actually first gets hooked up with Barnabas and Saul, who would later be named Paul. And Paul's the guy who's actually writing the letter of 2 Timothy. This is what it says. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. So, Barnabas and Saul had been appointed by the apostles to, because there was a famine, go to all of the churches in the area, collect an offering, bring it back to Jerusalem, and help pay for everyone to eat. So, they actually had been out all around the surrounding areas of Jerusalem, but then they come back to Jerusalem um, to drop the money off. Somehow, they meet John Mark... And they really hit it off because they actually bring John Mark with them out of Jerusalem um, back to where they were ministering in Antioch. So moving on, um, Acts 13 verse 13 we're going to go to next. And this is actually the point in the story where John Mark's life kind of goes downhill. So this is Paul and Barnabas on their very first missionary voyage where they went out of the Middle East into like Turkey and um, into Europe to preach the gospel and plant churches. And so John Mark actually goes with them for the beginning of their journey. But look what happens. Verse thirteen, thirteen. Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, but John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So, John Mark actually abandons Barnabas and Paul on this missionary voyage. We're not exactly sure why, but the obvious reason is probably scared of being beaten, scared of being killed, scared of being tortured, all those things which would happen to Paul and Barnabas. And so they're halfway, through. Actually, they're actually, only, they've only stopped at one place at this point. And John Mark is like, okay, I'm done with this. This is scary. I'm leaving you guys going back to Jerusalem. And so that happens, and John Mark loses a lot of respect in Paul's eyes. So much so that um, a couple years later, about, yeah, one year later, when Paul and Barnabas Barnabas are about to go out again on their second missionary voyage, look what happens in Acts 15, 37 through 39. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So, John Mark was actually the reason that Paul and Barnabas, like the dynamic duo, like the two main missionaries for the church part ways all over because Barnabas wants to give John Mark a second chance. Paul's like, no, we got a mission to do. We got a job to do. We can't bring somebody along who might desert us. And why why would we bring him who might desert us when there's all these other people that might really be able to contribute to what we're trying to do here? And so, um, so John Mark, he is no longer in Paul's good graces at this point in time. Then we don't hear about John Mark for the rest of the book of Acts. So the book of Acts is 28 chapters long. This is chapter 15. At that point, that is the last time we hear about him. And so the next time that we hear about him is actually 10 years later, and it's in a letter that Paul is writing to a church he had planted in in Colossae. So let's read that. This is Colossians 4.10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Something happened in those 10 years where Paul is rejecting John Mark in the year about AD 50. And then 10 years later, he's saying, hey, guys, um, you've heard about this guy. Maybe maybe the church kind of knew that he had been the one who had deserted Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary voyage. Um, But he's, hey, you've heard about him, but I want you to know I'm accepting him now and you should accept him too. Around that same time, we also hear about John Mark in a book that uh, Paul wrote to a guy named Philemon. This is what it says. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So now he's not just someone who's saying, hey, accept this person. But he's actually my fellow worker. And then the passage that we read in the very beginning, the last mention of John Mark. 2 Timothy 4 11, Only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. So at the end of Paul's life John Mark who he had rejected 16 years earlier is now someone he views as useful for service. So hopefully you enjoyed that history lesson. I love history. Um, if you don't then I'm sorry you just sit through that but <laughs> um, but no, I love getting to prepare for that, for specifically that portion. So what I want to do is share a couple of takeaways. And we were talking a lot about reputation earlier. And as I was re- um, reflecting on John Mark's story, this is the first thing that came to mind. We are responsible for our obedience. Christ is responsible for our reputation. I am not responsible for my own reputation. Jesus is responsible for my reputation. And what does that mean? Well, John Mark ruined his reputation when he bailed. So um, he probably had a pretty good reputation up until that point. He was the guy who was, I was actually in the garden when I was a teenager. I saw Jesus get betrayed. And then he's the guy who's at the house where Peter actually Um, comes to after he gets miraculously freed from prison. And then um, he's the guy who's getting close to Peter. And then he's the guy chosen to go out on the first missionary voyage outside of the Middle East. So he's got a really good reputation up until that point. But again, what takes years to build, you can lose in seconds. And so he loses his reputation right then and there when he deserts them. On the road. And so where he was, was had a good reputation. It's in the drain now. Maybe you've been in that place before too. I have. I've been in that place where I built up all of this good equity and then I made one mistake and boom, it was all gone. And what we can tend to do when we get to that place is think like this. I have to do whatever it takes to get my reputation back. I have to do whatever it takes to get my reputation back. And when we start thinking that way, here's the error. We start thinking that the reputation we had in the first place was all on us. That God, you know, he didn't really play a role in that. He didn't help me build that reputation. It wasn't my focus on him that built that reputation up. It was my focus on me. And so we actually enter into this kind of like selfish, self-focused mindset. When really what it takes to have a reputation respo- restored is trusting Christ. Whatever it takes is not putting that burden on us, but trusting Jesus. And some of you are like, well, wait a minute. Don't we have a part in it? Yes. So let me unpack this further. So what does it look like to trust Christ with a reputation? I want to share three things. The first one I'm going to spend the most time on. First thing we have to do in order to trust Christ with our reputation is this. Choosing to live our lives to please Jesus, not to please other people. If you want to trust Christ with your reputation, choose to live your life to please Jesus, not to please other people. Now here's what I didn't say. I didn't say what God thinks of me is all that is important. What people think of me doesn't matter. Okay, I did not say that. So, if I ask the five closest people to you, "Hey, is so and so a jerk?" and they all say, "Yeah, he's a jerk," or "Yeah, she's a jerk," then I'm probably going to think you're a jerk. Okay, and you're like, "Well, I don't care what people think of me. I don't live to please people. I just please to thank God." Well, God probably thinks you're a jerk too. If the five closest people to you, <laughs> if the five closest people to you are saying you're a jerk, you're probably a jerk. So what I wasn't saying was hey, all I care about is what God thinks and I don't give a you know what about what anyone thinks of me. Okay? That is not the mentality or the attitude that I'm talking about when I say what God thinks is more imp- more important than what people think. Okay? So there's really a balance here. Balance here. We need to care about what people think, but not too much. And you're like, "Well, great. What the heck is too much?" Well, Um, here's the balance, I think. When we have moved from trying to give something to people into trying to get something from people, that's when we've gone too far in thinking about what they think. So if I am concerned about what you think because I want to show kindness to you, if I'm concerned about what you think because I want to be generous to you, if I'm concerned about what you think because I want to love you, that is a good version of caring about what people think. But if I'm trying to get something from you, if I care about what you think because I want to get your approval, if I care about what you think because I want to get you to like me, if I I care about what you think because I want you to admire me or respect me or honor me, that is where we've gone too far. And so actually, both errors selfishness. The first one is I don't give a what you think. I'm just going to live my own life. That's selfish. But also I care so much about what you think because I want you to admire me and I want you to love me and I want you to like me. That is also another version of selfishness that can actually be masked in looking like you're being a considerate person. So we need to care about what people think but not too much. But the truth is, what God thinks is more important than what other people think. And here's why. God's thought processes about a situation are absolutely perfect. Flawed, without bias, without emotion. Um, Not without emotion, but without compromising emotion. And so, what God thinks, his thought processes, they're totally perfectly um, thought through. Whereas human beings have imperfect thought processes. And so human beings, if we live our life according to imperfect thought processes that human, human beings have, we're probably going to fall into error. It's kind of like, you ever had someone give you bad advice? And um, How about this? Has anyone ever given you bad advice when like, driving to a place? Like, hey, I know that your GPS is telling you to go this way, but... If you go this way, you're going to get there like 10 minutes quicker. Um, I don't have time to tell you the story, but Jamie and I coming home from a vacation had a debacle where I, I was convinced that if we took this other way, we'd get there earlier and it added 15 minutes to our trip. And we were already in a rush. And we'd already driven, you know, like eight hours that day. But um, I had a friend once who were driving down to Kentucky. And so... We got to go over the dreaded bridge. You know what bridge I'm talking about. I don't know what it's called, but you know what bridge I'm talking about. And so I already know, okay, that's going to take forever. And he's like, well, you know, we should just hop on 75 South and go straight down 75 to the bridge. And if someone ever tells you to just get right on 75, you can automatically know it's bad advice right then and there, (laughs) okay? Um, And so anyways, the point I'm trying to make is that People don't think stuff through. I didn't think through the advice that I gave Jamie when we were driving home from vacation. The person did obviously didn't think through the advice they gave me. Oh, by the way, it was 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday when I got that <laughs> advice. And so um, we understand that, okay, if someone hasn't thought through, if they, don't have a, if they don't have a good thought process, then I'm not going to take it and live my life by it. But so often, instead of going to Jesus, instead of going to God who has thought things perfectly through and asking him how we should respond or act in a situation, we try to read into what other people are thinking and in their flawed thought processes, and then we act on those. And it's, it's not any surprise that when we live our life to please other people, not to please God, bad things happen. Dysfunction happens. Another thing. God is the expert on every situation. You can always know that if you go to him, you are going to the most qualified person to give you advice. Think about it this way. How many of you have been skydiving before? Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. Man, you guys are brave. How many of you are like, I would rather die than go skydiving? Okay. Yeah. So, imagine, especially you people that raise your hand the second time, imagine you have to skydive. And so you're in the training and you're putting your harness on and you can't really, you can't quite figure out how to buckle it. Right. And you're not sure if it's going to be secure on your body. You're not turning to the other person who's skydiving for the first time and being like, Hey, can you show me how to buckle my thing? You're like, okay, where's the expert? Hey, come here, come here. Is this right? And you, and you're not like just being like laissez faire about it. You're like, all right, you're making them double check it. Because You don't want to die. You, you know, that parachute's your only lifeline. And so, um, why is it that when we're approaching a situation so often, instead of going to the expert, the one that really knows the right thing to do or the right thing to say, we're like looking to the people around us and what they're thinking and what they, and, and we're saying, hey, I'm going to live my life based on what I think you think. It doesn't make sense. And so, we have to understand that what God thinks, what he is thinking has to be the thing that dictates and rules our life. And when we really start to believe that, we will escape the trap of people-pleasing. And when we can escape the trap of people-pleasing, that's when we're really trusting our reputation to Jesus and not trying to do it all ourselves. But it is really a natural desire that we have to want people to um, honor us and to want to please people. That's a natural desire, and um, wanting to. There's nothing actually that wrong with wanting to be honored by people, but there's everything wrong with needing to be honored by people. And that's what I'm talking about. So, okay to want to be. It's not okay to need to be. So, John Mark. Um, We're not really sure what he did in those 10 years, between the year 50 and 60, where he went from being rejected by Paul to being back in his good graces. But what we're sure of is that he wasn't following Paul around all throughout the world, begging him to take him back, trying his hardest to get Paul to like him again, um, doing whatever whatever it takes to get Paul to accept him. He wasn't focused on that he was probably focused on simply starting over in living and honoring Jesus. And so here's the truth I want to pull out of that. If your focus is on pleasing God, you're going to honor God. And most of the time, you're going to have honor before people too. But if your focus is on pleasing people, you won't honor God and you probably won't have honor before people it probably was the fact that John Mark was, um, didn't follow Paul around and really try to convince him to like him again. It was probably the fact that John Mark just started over and rebuilt his reputation by living for Jesus that allowed him to get back into Paul's good graces. And so that is the biggest mistake we can make. When we feel like our reputation has um, just been dissipated, and then we spend all of our time and energy focused on the people that no longer regard us, instead of focusing on Jesus and living our lives according to how he wants us to live our lives, that's when we actually never get out of those mistakes, no matter how hard we try. But when we trust him, and we focus on obedience, he is the one who rebuilds our reputation. Second thing for how we trust Christ with our reputation. Choosing to forgive and show mercy to someone who wrongs us instead of repaying them for what they did. Okay, Choosing to forgive and show mercy to someone who wrongs us instead of repaying them for what they did. Turn with me to Matthew 18. We're going to read a story, a parable of Jesus. It's not going to be on the screen, so you can either listen to it or you can Read it along with me. Um, But we're going to read Matthew 18, and we're going to start in verse 21. So, here we go. Then Peter came and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Quick side note. One talent was 15 years of wages for the common laborer. 10,000. Imagine, okay, I, don't, I can't do the math. I probably could. 10,000 times um, 15 years of of whatever you make, or sorry, yeah, whatever you make in a year. 10,000 times 15 times whatever you make in a year. That's how much we're talking about here. That's a lot of money, okay? Moving on. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Forgave him like the million or maybe even billion dollar debt he had. 200 million, million, thank you. You had a calculator, whoever said that. (laughs) But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. Okay, so... A denarii was about a day's wage, so about a hundred days' worth of wages. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, "'Pay back what you owe.' So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, "'Have patience with me, and I will repay you.' But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened— they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay that, all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart, so obviously, the moral of the story is is obvious that Jesus God has forgiven all of us so much, like every wrong thing that we ever did to him, He has forgiven us that, and so when there 's someone who wrongs us, and maybe this is where your reputation actually um, was destroyed not because something that you did, but because of some, what someone said about something you did. When you're in that situation, it can be so hard to forgive. And you can spend all of your years with just bitterness and anger in your heart towards that person. And whenever you talk to someone else about that person, even if you try, that bitterness and that anger just comes out of you. And um, that is not the way to rebuild reputation. And that is not what it looks like to trust Jesus in building your reputation. Trusting Jesus is, I don't know how, and I know I'm not going to feel it right now, but I'm going to every day choose to forgive that person for what they did to me. Now, the sobering thing at the end of this parable is that Jesus says, if you don't forgive, then I'm going to do to you what that Lord did to that slave once he realized that slave wouldn't forgive other people. And so it can sound like, oh my gosh, like is God saying that, is Jesus saying that if I don't forgive people, that I'm like going to hell or what's going on here? This is what I think he's really getting at. Sometimes Jesus uses hyperbole because he wants to challenge a mindset that is incorrect. This is what I think Jesus is saying here, that when you choose not to, forgive somebody who has wronged you, your wrong is just as um, you've wronged in with, to the same degree that they have wronged you. The wrong of not forgiving them is equivalent to whatever wrong they inflicted upon you. And so um, really, if you choose not to forgive someone who wronged you, you're just as bad as they are, is what he's saying. And so we, um, it's hard Especially when you really feel betrayed, you really feel hurt, someone really, really wrongs you. It's hard, but our only option as believers is to forgive. And when we learn to forgive people that may have ruined our reputation, that is going to be the very thing that rebuilds our reputation in the eyes of the people around us. Because that can be a miracle in and of itself. All right, third and last thing that we have to do if we want to trust Christ with a reputation Choose to focus on what God is doing in the present instead of what has happened in the past. we got to be focused on the present, not the past. It's kind of like driving. When you're driving every once in a while, you should be looking in your rearview mirror and looking in your um, side mirrors to see what's going on behind you, if you're a good driver. Um, You should be doing that. But your main focus shouldn't be behind you. Who would want to drive with someone who is literally driving the whole time like this? Nobody. And so, the same is true for how we need to live our lives with the Lord. Like, our main focus needs to be on the present, on what's in front of us. Yeah, we should look back every once in a while because it's going to help us. It's going to, reflecting on the past can allow us to take steps forward. But we need to keep our focus on the present if we want Christ, if we want to trust Him with our reputation. And so, what's crazy about this is that God can even use our disagreements and conflicts to bring about. Good things. Going back to the story of John Mark, in those 10 years, I didn't tell you this, in those 10 years from AD 50 to AD 60, most scholars agree that that is when the gospel of Mark was actually written. And so here's the thought, would Mark have ever written the gospel of Mark if he hadn't parted ways with Paul in Acts 15 in the year AD 50? We might not have the gospel of Mark. Now, was it like God's will if had to happen? Who knows? But what we do know is that God brought about something pretty freaking cool out of that conflict and disagreement. Okay? The gospel of Mark. It's amazing. Choose to focus on what God is doing in the present instead of what has happened in the past. So trusting Christ with our reputation is the only way that it's going to be built back up doesn't mean we don't have a part to play in it. We absolutely have a part to play in it. Trusting him with it is the part that we're playing, though. And so I want to encourage you that if there is a reputation that you feel like you have, if you feel like people are looking down on you, around you in a certain way, if you think that people don't respect you, don't trust you, the answer is not to spend all of your time and energy focused on what they're thinking, but on what God is thinking. And when you live there in that place of what God is thinking then your reputation is going to be rebuilt. You're going to be honoring and pleasing him and you're probably going to be honoring and be pleasing people too. So that's all I have to say about John Mark. See, I did it. You were skeptical in the beginning. You were skeptical. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward to receive the offering. So we heard some instructions about this earlier, but um, if you need another reminder... Um, the baskets are in the far left part of your row. So if you're in the far left part of your row, if you wouldn't mind reaching down, grabbing it, passing it, um, checks Vineyard Northwest. You can also give on the app. It's really convenient, really easy. That's how Jamie and I give. I'd highly recommend that. And so we're going to go into worship now. And I just want to pray for us before we go into worship. And then, um, Tyler and Derry will tell you what to do. So, Father, we just say together that you are in charge of our, our reputation. We trust you with our reputation. Um, we trust you to um, help us regain favor and honor in the eyes of people that we may have lost favor and honor in. And, yeah, we just, we just want to say we really love you and, and we want to live our lives trusting you in every way possible. So would you come and meet us here right now? Would you come and interact with us in a powerful, significant way that changes us before we walk out of this room? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're moving into our uh, prayer and ministry portion of the service. I want to do something. I want to do something where I'm going to ask some of you to raise your hands. And now that might be a little intimidating for some of you. Might feel risky. One thing I might tell you is, no one's going to be like looking back to see who all has their hands raised. And you know, sometimes following Jesus, it just takes a little bit of boldness. It just takes a little bit of getting outside of your comfort zone in order to see breakthrough in your life. So if you right now feel like you have been trying and trying to live down a bad reputation or if um, a mistake that you made has caused a bunch of people to view you differently and you feel like you just can't get out of that, um, just go ahead right now and act of boldness and just pop your hand up for, just for a little bit. Okay, Just pop your hand up. If you are around someone with their hand up, would you ask them if you can lay a hand on their shoulder? And if they agree, would you do that? Once everybody has got someone, if again, if there's someone around you without a hand on them, please go to them. What I want you to do is just pray for them right now and just pray that all of the enemy is trying to do um, through other people and to them, that they would be freed from that. That they will be emboldened just to trust Jesus. Just pray for them for a second right now. Everybody on your own. Pray out loud. To release freedom over them right now. Pray boldness on them, the boldness of the Lord on them. Pray for them to have strength as they endure this time. Focus on Jesus. Pray for them. Yeah, I keep praying for them? So Jesus, we do just bless all of these people. Ask that you would fill them with strength and freedom from anything that the enemy has spoken over their life, from anything that other people have said, words that might be still ringing in their ears. Give them the freedom to not be obsessed with those things, the freedom to forgive anyone they need to forgive and the focus, um, the freedom is to focus on you right now in the present. We love you so much in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for praying, guys. So I'm gonna invite the prayer team to come forward. If you would like any continued prayer for any of that or prayer for anything physical, if you want to, we love to pray for people to be healed here at this church. Invite you to come forward for that. Um, So once the prayer teams get up here, you can feel free to come up, make a line. Um, This concludes our service. Everybody, thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next week.